Would you stand with me as we read Hosea chapter 2? We're going to be in verses 14, starting at verse 14 through 23. When I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and I'd like you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she shall sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of the land of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them, with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land, so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord." In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new oil, the new wine and oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Amen. I'm sure that you can think of uh, something, maybe a commercial or a billboard or something that's just caught your eye, something that captivates you. It's the marketing strategy of big businesses of movie trailers, TV commercials, to make us attracted to something, to make us think that we really want something, that we really need something. In our text, God is speaking to Hosea about how he will have to allure, about how he will allure Israel and bring her into the wilderness. To allure someone means to powerfully captivate, to attract or charm someone. You see, that's how the devil works. This is the devil's playing field. He likes to attract us with sweet words, with baits of pleasure to make us things that make us feel good, things that we would think better ourselves with. But it's here where it's necessary to have a sure, solid foundation. Am I right? Amen. So that we're not swept away by the deceitfulness of the devil. The word for allure here, also meaning persuade, does not carry the negative connotations that it would typically mean. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. This is a singular kind of power. I will allure her. It's not, I will drive her, or I will drag her, or I will force her. I will allure her with a tender, loving voice of persuasion. Think of how a parent allures their little child who's just beginning to walk, 
and the child's grabbing on to something, trying to hold them, themselves up, and the parent just has a little bit of chocolate or maybe a little apple or something sweet for them to allure them to come, walk into my arms. Trust me, walk this way. I know that my niece, Chloe, she, I ask her for a hug, and she refuses. No, I don't want to hug you, I run, and she runs away or something. But if I say, that's okay, I don't want to hug, she'll come running up to me and give me a hug. Okay? I know that I'm allured easily by, by chocolate and also by my mom's home cooking. It's great. Hey, we're having this over. Oh, I'm coming over. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to allure me with uh, my mom's food. Well, the Lord in his loving kindness and mercy expresses that in truthfulness, he will outbid the devil and he will win us to himself by fascinations, enticements, and allurements, which shall be stronger than any force of resistance that we have to offer. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Allure is a very remarkable word, and it teaches us that the persuasion of love outshines in power all other forces. God's love is a love that allures us. Here in our passage, the Lord will speak to Israel with tenderness of heart and draw her away from the commotion and chaos of her world and reestablish their marital covenant. God has recognized Israel's unfaithfulness and knows that she must be taken back to a place of complete dependency upon the Lord. The marriage metaphor is not yet abandoned, but the stage of the relationship will have to be taken back to that of courtship. You see, there's a difference between dating someone and courting someone. Dating is more kind of relaxed. It's like, hey, I like you and you like me, so let's go on a date. Let's go out. Let's, let's make it Facebook official. You know, we're, we're dating. On the other hand, courting is when two people develop a romantic relationship and make a covenant with a vision of marriage in the future. It's a more serious agreement. It's here in the desert that the Lord will be able to speak to his people without the distractions of her other lovers, her false gods, how they've been unfaithful to, to Yahweh. Yahweh uses the language of courtship to describe a renewed covenant of love between himself and his bride Israel, and he will transform her into the wife that she has failed to be in the past. You see, leading up to our passage, the prophet Hosea was called by God to marry a woman who was known for prostitution. And even after they got married, she would be continually unfaithful to him. And so this is Hosea's, God's call on Hosea's life. And she's going to be a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness to their covenant with the Lord. And her children will be a testament of God's anger against his people. Hosea was a prophet of the northern kingdom after the nation of Israel was split. Hosea's relationship to Gomer was to be an example of what God's relationship to his people Israel was to be. He's continually faithful loved her with unconditional love, even though she was unfaithful to him. So you see, this is the type of love that God shares with us. Isn't that amazing? 
Even when we mess up, God is there. He forgives us and loves us. Our text is a first-person speech from Yahweh and delivered by Hosea to give his audience a glimpse into the thoughts and feelings of God himself and to show us his love. In the 8th century B.C., they didn't have the luxury of learning through the Bible, learning about God through the Bible like we do. They had what was called oral tradition, where they passed down messages and important uh, uh, stories from generation to generation. And we, we have something similar to that. We have, we have some songs that we sing, some hymns. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Like, that's something we teach our children. That's an oral tradition, generation to generation. And it's, it's so important that the message from the prophets like Hosea was passed down this way because they didn't have the Bible like we do. They didn't have written words where we can read and grow on our own. They had to hear a word from the Lord from the prophets. It's a wonderful thing to be able to hear from God's word and to understand who he is and his message to each one of us and how his word is living and active in our lives. Therefore, I will now allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Throughout the Bible, God speaks intimately to hopeless wanderers as they feel completely alone in the desert and in the wilderness. It makes me think of uh, Abraham and Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, who ran off into the wilderness, and God spoke to her. It makes me think of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It makes me think of John the Baptist, who was a prophet and a, and a, pre- a preacher from the wilderness. It also makes me think of Jesus, who often went off by himself to be separated from the crowds and spend time alone with the Father. The wilderness is a place of seclusion. It's away from society, a deserted area, and may be seen at times as a place of rejection and loneliness. But it is also the place where God can speak to us the most and where we can hear him more clearly. In our passage, God's language of courtship will become the spark for Israel to recognize her first love and bring about an awareness that they belong to the Lord. It's not surprising that movement into and out of the wilderness requires a coaxing yet persuasive and tender voice. No one wants to go into the wilderness. And once you're out, once you're out there, you don't want to go back in because you're, you're off by yourself. You, you want, you're secluded. You may recognize this place of emptiness and desert. This wilderness and feeling of abandonment has been brought on at times by our own sin and destruction that's caused by it. But that's not where our story ends. We're not alone. Our God sees our current state of helplessness and intercedes for us. He wants his people to follow him into the wilderness so that he can be alone with them, to speak tenderly to them, to offer them forgiveness and correction, to speak to our hearts. In the wilderness, our God is able and willing to restore us to be made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away, and yet, behold, all things have become new. All things, everything, has become new. Our passage in Hosea is a call for the Israelites as well as for us to renew our covenant with God as individuals and as a church. 
To be faithful to him as he is always faithful to us, it requires an active obedience to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him, to preach the gospel and make disciples. It wouldn't mean anything to your spouse if you made a a marriage vow, but you didn't plan on keeping it. Just like marriage vows, we're, we're called to honor God, forsake all others, and love him at all costs. The circumstance shouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't be a true covenant of love if you did not do all of these vows all of the time. In the busyness of our lives, there's also the danger of becoming careless and of going through the motions. This type of attitude can blind us from the alluring, captivating love of God that that He has for us. It's His love that our souls desire and need. God's covenant relationship is established by committing your life to love unconditionally, but also believing that you're loved unconditionally. We need to establish our marriage covenants and relationships with one another on the foundation of God's powerful and alluring love. Any relationship that we have needs to have three parties. You, the other person, and God. It takes three for two to become one. This is something Ashley and I learned in our premarital counseling. It means that in our marriages, we must have God at the center. It takes three beings for two beings to become one being. Without his blessing and interaction in your life and in your marriage, you'll never be able to fully experience the sacred blessedness of marriage and complete joy. Now that Ashley and I are married, I've discovered what this means. And I'm telling you today that marriage is one of God's greatest gifts. Before we, got in, before we got married, we learned how to speak each other's love language. Um, I say we learned because it took time, it took commitment, it took effort, um, it just took getting to know each other to be open and honest and vulnerable with each other so we can love each other more deeply. Gary Chapman, he's the author of The Five Love Languages, and he recognizes that there are different ways that people speak and understand emotional love. I don't love someone the same as Ashley would love someone. You know, we're all created different. We all have different love languages. Through our love languages, we are able to experience deeper and more intimate levels of love. I know in our marriage, if I, there are some things that I may do for Ashley that would be sweet things, and there may be some things that I say that's like, okay, thanks for saying that. But if, I, if my heart's not in it, if I'm not focused on it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean as much. If I just, if I'm working on something and I say, I love you, it's like, oh, I love you too, you know, it's, it's just in passing. But if I have, if she has my complete attention and I say, Ashley, I love you, that, that means so much more. And it, that's why God wants to pull us out into the wilderness, to allure us into the wilderness so he can speak tenderly to our hearts and say, you're my priority. I'm focused on you and I want you to focus on me. God's desire is to allure us to a place that he can be alone with us. We need to be alone with him so we can hear him. We need to be able to listen. When we allow God to have our complete attention, 
we're able to hear him speak tenderly to our hearts. He speaks our love language in the most intimate and personal way. It's when we focus our attention on him that he reveals his purpose and his plan for our lives. He loves us so much that he created the whole, uh, whole world, the universe. He created each one of us. He loves us so much that he gives us his word, which gives us the ultimate truth for our lives and reveals his character to us. He loves us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we can have a personal relationship with him. He loves us so much that he gives his son to die as a sacrifice for our sins. He loves us so much that he sent his son to suffer ridicule and shame on a cross so that we can be called his children. He loves us so much that he gives us the opportunity to have eternal life with him when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior and believe that he died and rose again on the third day. Amen. It's from the cross that we hear Jesus' words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus also experienced feelings of abandonment and separation from God. His self-sacrifice for us is the ultimate display of love and shows that he's not willing to have anyone perish, but that all may come to have eternal life with him. It is from this place that he's able and willing to give us the desires of our hearts and to have our joy be made complete. From there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. This verse announces that God's people will be given back everything that was promised to her um, from the time of the exodus from Egypt. The vineyards represent the arable land, the land that's fit to grow crops, that was taken away because of their unfaithfulness to God. Unlike the first exodus and conquest, God's people will not stumble as Israel did because of Achan in the valley of Accor. The valley of Accor is the valley where Achan and his family were stoned to death because of Achan's sin and disobedience after the Israelites conquered Jericho. He's the one who stole from the, from the plunder. He's the one who di- disobeyed God and, and hid the, the treasures under his tent. You see, Accor literally means troubling. It's the valley of trouble. Look at how closely these words are placed together, trouble and hope. It's a bit odd. We might say, I hope I don't get in trouble. But that's as close as the words come together. But here, trouble is the reason for hope. Why? Well, it's because the valley of trouble is where God often reveals himself to us. The trouble in which we find ourselves in can actually swing open a door of hope. Israel is in a valley of trouble. They have been disobedient, worshiping Baal and other idols, and breaking their covenant with God. But in spite of their sin and the promise of coming judgment, the Lord is continually beckoning them to return, alluring them to return to him. The valley of Accor is described as becoming a gateway of hope in which the Israelites will experience restoration from the trouble that they have been led into by their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. 
The Hebrew word for hope here is tiko, and it's a homonym for the word thread or rope. Hope, rope. The rope which Rahab hung from the wall of Jericho to ensure her safety so that the Israelites would know that this is where she's staying. We're not supposed to attack this place where the rope is hanging out because God has called us to protect her. Achan is the Israelite who pillaged the spoil in Jericho, and Rahab is the symbolic counterpart to Achan. She's the one Canaanite who survived and symbolizes the possibility of covenant renewal, of a union between Yahweh and Canaan and between land and desert. Friends, church, America is in a valley of trouble. Evil is growing all around us, and it's hate like we've never seen before. Just the other day I read a list of ongoing Ongoing, countless stories of racism, of hate, and abuse that's happening right now in our lives. People wanting to see others fail, purposely going out of their way to put people down. We are living in a world of trouble. And church, we are in a valley of trouble, a deep valley of trouble. See, the human soul is the most important aspect of the human life, but it's the most neglected. But it's the only thing, the one thing that's eternal. The covenant that we make with God must include standing up against injustice and to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Whether you're in a wilderness or in a valley of trouble, You can rest in the peace and hope of God's faithful love. These places of unrest are God's chosen place for you at this time because God led you there. He has a purpose for you. He has a plan. The wilderness places are where God can speak to you, away from distractions, away from the false idols, away from this life of loneliness. The valleys of trouble are the places where you can find hope because nothing's impossible with God. And there's no sorrow that heaven can't heal. These places of difficult times are where God trains us to trust Him. It's here where we learn to trust Him and to discern His voice. We need to spend some time alone with God so we can hear Him when He speaks, so we can hear His call on our lives. No matter what valley we face or wilderness we find ourselves in, Jesus went to the ultimate valley of trouble for us in order to open a door of hope and eternal life in him. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think the words of David Crowder's song, Come As You Are, describe the confident hope that we can have in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Listen to these words. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted. Let rescue begin. 
Come find your mercy. O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. There's hope for the hopeless. And all those who've strayed, come sit at the table and come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. So lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart and come as you are. That's the invitation for you this morning. Wherever you are, no matter what you've done, God wants to share his love with you. He wants to speak tenderly to your heart. He knows your love language more than anyone else could ever speak your love language. He cares about you and wants, you to, wants to allure you to a place that he can truly speak to your heart and to your soul. God's love is exciting. There's so much joy in the relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ. God's love is a love that allures you. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for speaking to our hearts in a way that no one else can. For offering forgiveness when we stumble and fall, when we are completely disobedient, and for you renewing a covenant with us, a marriage covenant that will last forever, for all eternity. We know that you're faithful, God. We pray that you bless our nation. Help us and guide us through this valley of trouble. Protect us, God. Teach us to listen to you. And that we would love you above all else in the world. Whatever else is alluring us, God. I pray that you would be the one, one thing that allures us the most. So that we can live righteously with you. Thank you, God, so much. It's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.